Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. You're breathing. I'm breathing. But neither of us is probably thinking about our breathing right now. Do you ever think about your breathing during your workouts or races? Do you ever wonder if you should be training the act of breathing as a skill? Or whether you should be doing something differently during rest and recovery, between intervals, or even on those long endurance rides? In some ways, breathing is a much discussed topic. Often, however, that's in the context of meditation or in the practice of yoga or other such disciplines. Breathing for performance in the context of training and racing, however, is not something that gets a whole lot of attention. And that's why we focus today's episode solely on that topic. While Trevor was sitting in Toronto and I was in Boulder, we caught up with a leading expert on the science of breathing, Dr. James Hull, who joined us from London. Dr. Hull's experience is vast, it's varied, and all of it focuses on breathing. He is a respiratory physician at Royal Brompton Hospital in London and the clinical lead looking at unexplained breathlessness during exertion. He also works at the Institute of Sports, Exercise, and Health at University College London. He also works with elite athletes, both as part of the English Institute of Sport, working with British Olympic athletes, and as a contributor to the International Olympic Committee's Respiratory Guidance Committee. Whew. Mouthful. Leaves you breathless, you might say. Dr. Hull takes us through the science of respiration today, from the state of the system, is it overbuilt? Is it underbuilt? To pathological concerns for athletes. Do you think you have asthma? There's a good chance that's a misdiagnosis. Finally, we discuss the things you can do to improve performance through breathing. Not to be forgotten today, we talk with several guests about the meditative side of breathing as well as the practice of breathing. We hear from Coach Colby Pierce. Catch him on his own podcast, Cycling in Alignment, if you haven't already. We catch up with Erica Clevenger, a member of the TIBCO Silicon Valley Bank Women's Pro Team and someone who suffers from asthma. And we also hear from two elite coaches that have been on the program many times before, Julie Young and Neil Henderson. Inhale, exhale. Let's make you fast. Friends and supporters of Fast Talk, we need your help. We'd like to know more about you, our listeners. What do you enjoy about Fast Talk? What should we do next? Please take our survey and tell us how we can become even more interesting and useful. Take our survey at fastlabs.com survey. Well, we want to welcome Dr. James Hull to the program today to Fast Talk. It's, uh, I know your background is extensive. It hits at the heart of our listeners, athletes. And so we're really excited to talk to you today, Dr. Hull. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. Now, today we have a physician on the show. We do not have a yogi on the show. And that's because we're not going to talk too much about how to breathe to relax and how to breathe when it comes to meditation, how to um, use some of those yogic practices in breathing. This is more about the science of breathing, the performance enhancements that can come from proper breathing, the pathologies that some athletes might uh, suffer from out there. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground when it comes to 
to breathing today, all in the context of the science of breathing. Trevor, I know you have a little way to kick off the show, so hit it. I think the a good starting point is the fact that many athletes, they, they focus on power, they focus on what they can do about their form, what they can do about the strength of their legs, all these other factors, and, and maybe don't think that much about respiration. And something that kind of caught my attention as I was researching for this episode is I, I found this 2018 study in the Journal of Sports Medicine and Physical Fitness that was trying to look at what physiological factors differentiate flat riders from hill riders from sprinters. And so they looked at 17 different variables. And I'm just going to read to you their conclusion, which is, or the, the one line and the initial line, of their conclusion, which is respiratory indicators mostly contribute to the discriminant power of the model. Basically saying of all these things that they looked at, the, the best way they could differentiate these different types of riders was with respiration indicators. So that really caught my attention that this is probably a very important factor that maybe some of us aren't thinking too much about. With that, we have somebody who is a, an expert on this subject. I definitely am not. So I guess the, the place that I would love to start is maybe, Dr. Hall, you could just tell us what are the things, some of the things that we need to know about breathing or respiration from the scientific standpoint that we haven't really thought about? Well, that's a great introduction. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area, as you allude to. The respiratory system is highly evolved, um, you know, over, over thousands of years, um, such that it's it's a beautiful system when you really break it down. It's got huge um, airspace uh, capacity with fantastically intricately designed blood flow, which allows a delivery of oxygen and then the transmission of that oxygen through to the exercising muscle. And when we look at the way that it's evolved and the airways allow ventilation to uh, perform, then you start to say that actually the ways in which uh, the system has evolved so highly allows people to really do incredible things and to actually put that system under massive amount of pressure. So we increase our ventilation from resting values of 10 to 15 liters up to almost 200 um, or 200 or more liters when you're exercising uh, very intensely. I think we're probably going to touch on some of the factors that we think may limit the ability of the uh, exercising respiratory system to function. But I think one of the things that's overlooked is the fact that this interlinks with other systems. So for instance, if you start to get fatigue in the respiratory muscles, that feeds back and plays into blood flow and uh, contractility within the peripheral musculature. So the systems are all interlinked, as you might expect in a highly adapted physiological system. Before we dive into the science, and so that we don't sound like we're beating up on yoga, let's hear from top coach Julie Young. She's a physiologist at the Kaiser Sports Endurance Lab, and when we asked her about breathing, she talked about encouraging her athletes to practice yoga. You know, it's interesting because I've just recently been thinking more about the nose breathing, which I always thought was a little impractical. Um, but it is interesting, the effect that I've found just personally, the effect that has when I'm out like riding more just at an endurance pace in terms of like the calming and the, it's just, it's, it feels, it's not very scientific, but it feels very effective. 
but um, just started just to play with that a bit, but, but more in terms of athletes, it's trying to remind them like in our off bike work, we'll do some breathing, we'll do breathing exercises in terms of that deep belly breathing. Um, I kind of picked this up from, from a yin yoga class in terms of a belt around the lower belly and just feeling like you're breathing 360. And I also really have found for myself, like I've, I feel like there's so many benefits to, to yin yoga and one being it really makes me mindful of my breathing and in terms of that deep belly breathing. And then also when you're kind of in a sticking point to really breathe through it. And I think about it like starting a sprint or starting an effort and when you start to start to hold your body tightly and start holding your breathing tightly. And that really, that practice helps me tremendously. So I really encourage my athletes to try to incorporate yin yoga into their, their week. And that's not just for the, the opening and the stretching, but it is also for the breathing. And hopefully they can bring that deep belly breathing into the, onto the bike and it becomes more of a, you know, a default as opposed to something they have to think about. Yeah, that was something in your review that I found really fascinating that I admit I hadn't given a ton of thought to, which is we have a lot of respiratory muscles. Some of them are, are quite strong. And when they are working hard, they actually have a, a high demand for blood flow. They have a high demand for oxygen. But if you're on a bike, they're competing with your leg muscles for that oxygen, for that blood flow. And you even cited a study where they had, I think it was cyclists, while they were doing a test, they had mechanical ventilation so that they didn't have to rely on their internal muscles and they were able to perform better. As you allude to, we've recently published an article. I was very lucky to co-author that with Jerome Dempsey, who's a very famous name in respiratory physiology. Uh, and Jerome, for well, almost two decades, really, has done a lot of work looking at that with his research group and looking how the there is an interplay between respiratory muscle work and loading uh, and an interplay with the um, so-called metabolic reflex and how that links into uh, peripheral uh, motor function. And you're quite right. If you can offload those respiratory muscles, at least at moderate intensity exercise or above, that uh, affects the function, blood flow, and potentially the neural traffic uh, to the peripheral musculature. So there is something about the amount of work that you're doing with your breathing, which is impacting, affecting the performance of your peripheral muscles. So I need to ask you the big question that might be a huge disappointment to me. And, and so I'm going to point out even the, the review that you just published is called, is the healthy respiratory system built just right, overbuilt or underbuilt to meet the demands imposed by exercise? And, and I'm, I'm just going to qualify here. Very early in my career, when I started studying physiology, I studied how the uh, system is overbuilt. And so we never are stressing the respiratory system. And that was fascinating to me. That was one of the things that said, okay, this is my career. So I'm kind of worried after reading a review that I picked the wrong career because apparently I've had this wrong. Is this the, is this the case? Is it not overbuilt? Well, I mean, so this has been an area that's been debated for some considerable time. And I think if you, if you go to most uh, exercise physiology testing laboratories, some of the techniques or ways in which people assess ventilatory or respiratory performance are based on relatively crude measures. So for instance, 
you, you might do a, a rig test on an exercise bike and determine uh, from a preset point what you expect someone to have as a ventilatory capacity or as a maximum. And for instance, people would calculate that based on a multiplication of a resting lung function indice. And then you'd, you'd exercise on the bike, you'd put in as much as you could as the subject and, and then determine the ventilation that was achieved at the peak of exercise and compare that to um, the, the predicted maximum to try and work out whether people had encroached on this ventilatory limitation or were becoming ventilatory constrained in some way. And I think what we've learned is that actually when you start and you think about uh, whether the system is overbuilt or underbuilt on that very crude basis, you really miss a trick. And certainly within the review, and I'd encourage anyone who's uh, got a spare couple of hours to read it, um, to, to when you start to look at that and you think about the other factors which might be relevant, for instance, uh, how different segments of the airway tree perform, whether you develop a phenomenon called expiratory flow limitation, which isn't characterized by those very crude measures, you actually start to see um, that rather than seeing what you might think is a capacity that is always there at the end of exercise, some of those issues aren't quite so clear cut. And in fact, what looks to be overbuilt from crude measures or a crude perspective actually um, isn't particularly overbuilt when you push it quite hard, particularly in trained individuals. Yeah, I, well, I, did, I wrote a very lengthy paper for one of my master's classes all about the pronghorns and, and what I had read, but this is older research is that pronghorns and humans are the two species on the planet that have overbuilt lungs. I don't, I mean, yeah, and, and I think, you know, certainly some of the evidence has really evolved relatively recently. So within this review, uh, we highlight two relatively, I think, new areas of understanding. Uh, we'll probably come on to them in a little while, but um, certainly a, an increased insight with respect to um, the upper airway or the extrathoracic airway and how that performs, particularly in very young athletic individuals and how when you increase ventilation to a certain uh, certain level that seems to cause pressure drops across the extrathoracic airway which in many ways causes it to fail and then to drag inwards to further restrict performance and then likewise our increased understanding of how the right ventricle performs now I'm no expert in this area but you know there's certainly an evolving understanding with some of the more modern physiological techniques we have that the right ventricle is a particular pinch point um, and comes under considerable stress uh, during the extremes of exercise, particularly in the highly trained individual. I found that fascinating in your review. So, and this is remarkably complex. We probably shouldn't even be touching on this, but the kind of simplified version is the, the left side of your heart, so your left ventricle, which pumps the blood out to your body, is really designed to handle high stress, high activity. Uh, but what you were saying in your review is the right ventricle, which handles uh, blood flow to the pulmonary system, is really designed more for, for passive flow and has a harder time with, with high intensity, high activity. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that people, you know, only really start to grips with how high the pressures can, uh, can, can rise to in the pulmonary circulation. And that puts um, immense strain on the right ventricle, which, is, as you say, isn't used to pumping against those very high pressures. And over time, you know, that has effects on remodeling the right ventricle, as you would see in the left ventricle, where you see uh, changes that, um, you know, certainly differentiate 
highly trained or um, uh, highly trained endurance athletes, at least from the from the relatively normal or untrained individual. And we're starting to learn more about how that occurs in the right side of the circulation, in the right ventricle. So why don't we take a, a step back here and try to do the, the 5,000 foot overview. Your area of expertise is the resp- respiratory system. Forgive me, that's one of those words I, I struggle to pronounce. But you know, another thing I really got from your review is just how complex that system is. And I say that because I read your entire review, got to the end of it and went, wow, I absorb absolutely none of that. I have to go and read it again. <laughs> because it was, it was quite complex and it was fascinating. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I had to really take my time going through the review to understand the complexity. So can you give us a, a simplified version of how the system how the system works to try and unpick this overbuilt versus underbuilt um versus a perfect system concept i I think it it was necessary to go through the various different components of that system and so when you think about it on a, a simplistic um simplistic viewpoint you know you're talking about do the respiratory muscles do what they need to do and, and do they fail at times? Are there times when actually the load overcomes the capacity to deliver? And of course, in a commercial sense, there is a, there is a lot of interest in that. And there, is a, there are many advocates who would say that actually, yeah, your respiratory muscles are a weak point with you as an athlete and the way you might perform. And that is an area that you could actually enhance your performance. And again, I suppose we'll come on to that. And then if you look at the other components, what happens when you ventilate in order to deliver the, an effective ventilation, you need um, an effective airway, which isn't obstructed. And then you need an alveolus and gas exchange system, which allows you to transmit things, uh, transmit oxygen and to clear the waste gas carbon dioxide in an effective way. And if there is a problem in that system, you have uh, what is so-called increased dead space. And so with increased dead space, that means space that isn't actually really doing anything effective in terms of gas exchange, you have to ventilate that much greater. So for a unit of ventilation, if if your breathing is efficient, then you can clear more of the waste gas. If it's less efficient, then you've got to breathe, you've got to to breathe harder really and increase your ventilation for that given unit of waste gas. And then you've you've got to appreciate that actually in terms of the performance of the exercising muscle key to all of that is delivery of oxygen and so the fact is you, you can't discount the ability for the circulation to function and deliver that and also what happens to the oxygenation oxygenation status of the blood and so you know in that review we we, we touch on all of those issues so we talk about for instance exercise induced arterial hypoxemia as a phenomenon which is recognized in athletes and of course will impair oxygen delivery to the muscles we talk about how the right ventricle functions and how that might uh, impair circulatory performance. We talk about exercise-induced asthma and the extra thoracic airway and how that might impair flow or ventilation. Uh, and then you try and pull it together and, uh, and if you like, uh, make some sensible comments about how that leaves us. And in fact, you know, as you'll know from reading the summary and the conclusion, there's a lot of unanswered questions in this area. Um, and as I said before, you know, the ability to perform more detailed scientific experiments and some of the new techniques that are available has allowed us to really progress our understanding and hopefully get closer and closer to an answer. Yeah. So that was something that you, you, you just brought this up and something that kind of surprised me at the end of your review 
because I read through all this and you just took the whole system apart piece by piece and said, well, here's where you can have potential issues with this part. Here's where you can have potential issues with that part. And, and as you went through it, a lot of the theme was most of these things are untrainable and worse. Uh, most of them get worse with age and there's nothing you can do about that. And, and before I got to your conclusion, I was sitting there as a 50-year-old going, oh, my God, I'm going to stop being able to breathe within the next five years. This is horrible. And then one of the first lines in your uh, uh, your conclusion was the cardiovascular system in general and maximum stroke volume specifically, uh, together with circulating blood volume and hemoglobin mass, are the major gatekeepers regulating O2 transport. Uh, and then you say the respiratory system inadequacies or constraints do not occur in all healthy subjects. And when they do, they account for relatively minor limitations to performance, which I, I admit I was surprised to hear. You're saying, well, all this adds up to not a big impact. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, as a respiratory physician and a respiratory sports physician, I always um, like tussling with my sports cardiology colleagues. And, you know, they always get ahead in terms of, the major publications and the grant funding. And, in, you know, we're seen as the sort of a poor relation, I have to say, to sports cardiology. And of course, in many ways, that's because some of the pathological conditions they look after are utterly devastating instantly. So, you know, the cardiac dysrhythmias or um, cardiomyopathy conditions, which have a huge impact straight away. I, you know, when you look at the impact of um, a significantly or at least moderately impaired cardiac output or an anemic individual, those uh, limitations far outstrip um, subtle defects in ventilation, for instance, from exercise-induced asthma. And in fact, uh, within this review, we're quite candid in saying that if we look at all the papers that have looked at how pathological conditions such as exercise-induced asthma or indeed this more recent condition, which is becoming more well-known called exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, the levels of impairment are relatively subtle in comparison. So even in experiments where you have exercise in an individual with asthma and you bronchoconstrict them before performing exercise by means of a bronchoprovocation test, and then you look at the impediment to performance, whilst there's quite an impediment in terms of the subjective sensation of breathlessness, actually in terms of the overall impairment to the exercise performance it's very marginal so i think those statements are, are are true we'll probably come on to say that one has to bear in mind of course that any impediment when you're at an elite level or you're at a competitive level is an impediment you don't want at all so you know to discount the respiratory system and just to assume that that statement is something which means that you just need to focus on cardiovascular and a hemoglobin conditioning uh, is all you need to do i think is is somewhat remiss and actually you need every benefit you can get if you want to perform at the top level. Despite being a top pro with Team Tipco SVB, Erica Clevenger has struggled with asthma. She shared her experience with us and also described what she does to manage it. Um, breathing is definitely something I think about a lot. I do have asthma. It's something I think probably more about off the bike than I do on the bike. Um, when, I, when I'm on the bike, though, I really think about, especially in those times when I'm kind of doing that, like, midway between I'm, you know, that low zone two versus like going anaerobic. So anything that's kind of that tempo or like threshold, I 
am often thinking to myself like about my breathing and how I can um, kind of slow down my breathing if I can, um, take deeper breaths and really, really belly breathe is kind of the term that I was taught, but I think it's um, uh, like breathing through your diaphragm kind of a thing. It helps me perform a little bit more efficiently. Usually when you're anaerobic, of course, you're, you, you don't really have a choice. You're going to be breathing pretty hard. You know, asthma, um, there's a lot of different things that can, can cause an asthma attack, but certainly, you know, hyperventilating or things like that can bring on an asthma attack. And so really um, being able to force yourself to take a deep breath and like, like sort of chill out um, is kind of important for just having um, asthma. So I think that's partly also where I sort of learned to kind of keep my breath under control and think about it more. I, I think uh, many people out there have heard this term before of belly breathing, but I'm wondering if I can put you on the spot and tell us what that actually means. How does somebody quote unquote belly breathe? And, and I'll say what it means to me. Obviously, I'm not um, an expert on this kind of stuff, but um, really um, one thing that I found that helps me practice this stuff actually is yoga because they talk about this kind of stuff a lot. Um, and, you know, sometimes I can get frustrated doing yoga because <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's too slow. Uh, you know, why don't I just go lift some weights or something? Um, but I really love how the focus, there is a lot of focus on breathing. And so to me, belly breathing means um, taking that deep breath and feeling it go like down into your belly, like through your diaphragm and um, into your diaphragm. And just like if you were to lay on the ground and put one, like your left hand on your chest and your right hand on your belly, you should feel both sort of expand as you're taking a deep breath. Now, going back to the topic of asthma, are there things... You know, I, I do not have asthma, so correct me if I'm wrong, but if in a race situation there are times or, or situations, uh, triggers, I suppose, that could elicit a asthma attack, are there certain things you can do with your breathing to prevent that from happening? Yeah, so I think that asthma, um, and even for those who have it, isn't always the same. Um, for me, I... It tends to be more of um, something that is like a constant low level affliction for me. So it's not that I get a lot of asthma attacks per se, but it's that I just, um, you know, have this, I just need to take slightly deeper breaths because it's a little bit harder for me to force that air down when my lungs are kind of inflamed. Um, and so I find that that happens for me depending on the time of year. Um, so like for some people it's worse in the winter and for some it's in the summer for me, I have a really tough time in the summer because of um, pollution actually. And um, especially right now with some of the fires that have been going on. Um, so I just find that I have to force a little bit more air down there. So it's almost like I'm living at, you know, I live at 5,000 feet now. So it's almost like I'm living at like 9,000 feet or something, or at least that's how it feels to me. Um, so, but when it comes to preventing that, um, like just having less, um, I guess, symptoms of asthma in general, like I definitely take like a, a you know, an inhaler, like a long-term control kind of a thing, but there's actually a lot of other things that I do. Um, so for example, another aspect of breathing when you're off the bike is um, breathing through, trying to breathe through your nose a lot. Um, when you're not exercising, there's a lot of benefits to breathing through your nose or so I've read. Um, but um, you're filtering air by breathing through your nose um, and you're forcing air into your lungs a little bit longer by breathing out through your nose. Um, and it actually, when you're in a 
place like Colorado, where I am, or if you're in Arizona or, um, you know, one of those really arid states, you um, lose a lot of, um, you, you lose a lot of moisture through your mouth. So you actually end up getting dehydrated a lot more quickly. Um, and all of those things are kind of aggravating to um, at least my lungs, I feel. Um, and so if I'm constantly breathing through my mouth and I'm not really filtering anything through my nose, um, and then I'm also getting more and more dehydrated. Um, so that's one of the things I kind of think about a lot when I'm, you know, off the bike um, to prevent some of those more severe like asthma symptoms sort of constantly. Um, I also have like, you know, I, <laughs> I have a humidifier and I have an air filter and all of those things and make sure that those, um, even if I don't have them on or around me all the time, like especially when at night when you have like, you know, eight hours of being in the same room sleeping all the time, like that's a really good time to um, try and make sure that you're getting like good air and a good, good moisture. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'd say like during a race, if I were to have an asthma attack, um, I usually, um, it's pretty rare that I'll have one during a race. Actually, my asthma tends to be really bad after training. Um, so like after, you know, um, I, I think of my lungs as like a muscle. And so, you know, when you are working out and, or you're doing a hard ride or you're like lifting or something and yeah, I mean, it kind of, you know, you feel like you're pushing your muscles, but they really don't hurt until like a little bit later, like, you know, afterwards. And I feel that that kind of, um, that's how I feel about my lungs a little bit. So I tend to feel like I um, really struggle with my asthma after training. So it doesn't come up that much when I'm actually racing, um, except for maybe when I'm doing like a really hard effort and then recovering. Um, and at that point, I think it circles back to what I mentioned before about um, really bringing that breath down and trying not to like, you know, panic or hyperventilate um, because those things certainly make asthma attacks far worse. It's probably a good time now to talk a little bit more in depth about some of the pathological concerns that athletes might have, asthma, um, some of these other conditions. Could you, Dr. Hull, walk us through some of those conditions you see most often and define them for us? Yeah, sure. And I think the thing to say, first of all, is that if, if, a, if an athlete feels an impediment to their performance, they often feel breathlessness or they feel a sensation they can't get an adequate breath. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of different conditions, including, for instance, cardiac conditions, which can make you feel breathless. And just because you're breathless, it doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from a respiratory problem. If we think about the main conditions that I see clinically, lots of individuals report problems when they're working very hard, um, where they can feel a sensation, they can't get a satisfying breath. They sometimes feel a, uh, hear a wheezing sound. Um, and that might be a wheezing sound breathing out, or it might be a wheezing sound breathing in. Uh, and they might have other allied features such as cough, chest tightness, uh, a constriction in the throat. Historically, when most particularly young athletes present with breathing difficulties on exercise, it's just assumed straight away that that's got to be exercise uh, associated asthma or exercise induced bronchoconstriction. It's a phenomenon where the airways tighten down, particularly the smaller airways. And it's usually classified by looking at lung function before and, for instance, after an exercise test and looking for a fall in the lung function. Usually what happens when people present, they go to their primary care physician and usually, generally speaking, people are just given a blue inhaler, so an albuterol inhaler, and told to just go away, try that and see if it does anything. 
And what we've known from years and years of research now is that it's really poor way to try and make a definitive diagnosis. So we know that in athletes, the presence of respiratory symptoms isn't very predictive actually of it being an asthma-based process. And so if you wanna get a really robust diagnosis, then you need to do objective testing and really look at what happens to the lung function in exercise. And of course, there are other conditions which can mimic asthma. And so certainly over the last five to 10 years, we've become very aware of a key differential diagnosis. Many of your listeners on this, uh, on this podcast will have this condition. In fact, I would say it's almost as common as asthma as a cause of breathing difficulties. And that's a condition called ILO or exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. Sometimes in the States, it's known as exercise-induced vocal cord dysfunction. Hmm. And, and what happens is the upper airways close up um, and essentially they limit air getting in when you're working really hard and that makes you feel very breathless and it can sometimes be associated with a wheeze that when you're breathing in like a what's called a stridor sound but really you hear a wheeze as you're breathing in and as you back off the intensity uh, so things start to settle down and it's often misdiagnosed as asthma. So in the review you said about 15 to 20 percent of athletes have this what's the unexplained exertional breathlessness is I think the terminology you used. So it's quite common. Yeah, it is common. And in fact, we did a study in Scandinavia where we looked at um, almost 100 athletes with, if you like, unexplained breathlessness. And this diagnosis of exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction was as common as exercise-induced asthma right. when we performed objective testing. And so, you know, if I go to the you know the park run in, on a Sunday morning and I listen uh, out for runners coming in, you know, in a standard park run, there's at least two to three percent of the runners coming into the funnel at the end of the run who've got classical features for ILO. They're coming in, mm. they can't get their breath, they've got a wheeze breathing in, and they're grabbing for a blue inhaler, and that's never going to help them. I think that's probably the important point here is that a lot of people might think that they have asthma. They've been misdiagnosed. They have this ILO, and so the treatment for ILO is substantially different than asthma. Is that correct? You got it. Exactly. And, you know, just to speak to cycling, you know, I work with British cycling and there's a, there's a significant number of elite riders. And in fact, within the world, the world tour pro ranks, again, I, you know, I look after a significant number of athletes in those ranks who do have this condition. So if you're out riding or you're out racing and you're in a break or you're on a climb and the person next to you is wheezing, it's more likely they've got ILO than they have exercise induced asthma. I have to admit, I had never heard of this and I read it and kind of went bingo myself because I have wheezing problems. I have periodic breathlessness to the point that frequently I, I get emails from our listeners saying, are you not feeling well? <laughs> Is something up? That's the case. And when I give talks about this or, I mean, I was even once on a plane and I was looking at my slides for a, for a talk I was going to give and both people on either side of me on the flight um, they leant over and they were listening to the things and go, oh, I think I've got that condition. And, yeah. you know, that, that, that's how common this is. I mean, you know, many of your listeners will be listening and thinking, I wonder if that's what I've really got. Because when I push it hard, I get breathless and I get, I can hear a wheezy noise. Um, yeah. I can feel my upper chest and throat feeling a bit tight on me. Briefly, what is the treatment for this? And the first thing is to um, raise it as a diagnosis. So most people haven't heard of it. So even by just knowing or thinking about it, you can then start to alert people around you and particularly your doctor to say, look, actually, um, you know, I might have this condition and it stops you going down the line of being treated with more and more asthma treatment. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing is to take a selfie recording on a video because on your phone or whatever to show to people, say, look, you know, this wheeze isn't really like asthma, is it? It's a breathing in wheeze um, and it occurs at peak intensity, whereas in contrast, asthma tends to occur, um, you know, often very classically when you've stopped exercising or when you, you know, exposed to very cold air and it's a very sort of insidious tightness in your chest. It's not as dramatic as ILO. And then those, so those first two steps establish the diagnosis. And then thereafter, largely the, the, the treatment is centered on some special breathing techniques. So this goes right full circle back to the physiology where what we think happens in ILO is that when you increase your ventilation up to very high levels, for instance, when you're attacking, you're in a break or you're, you're climbing, essentially as you're dragging large volumes of air into the upper airway, that causes a pressure drop across the small laryngeal inlet and in those people who've got slightly vulnerable structures in that area, that acts by some of those sort of forces of physics, the Bernoulli principle, to drag in these structures even, even closer together. And the harder you breathe, the worse it gets. And that's why sometimes you see people at the end of a rowing race who just can't get a breath in and they almost black out because they're effectively hyperventilating uh, because they can't get any air in and out. And so we work with breathing exercises to try and give athletes way to modulate airflow into the upper airway. And one of the things I really appreciated, so this is one of your papers from 2013, where you really emphasized the difference between asthma and ILO. And you also said, you know, people talk about exercise-induced asthma, better terminology is exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, because it's not the same thing. But the other thing that I enjoyed that you commented in there is you said clinical testing is uh, about as accurate as flipping a coin. From that, I mean really clinical assessment. So, if, for instance, if you go and see a primary care physician and you sit in a, in a consult and you're an athlete and you say to them, when I exercise, I get breathless and I wheeze, you know, they're, they're as likely to get the diagnosis right at that point as flipping a coin in the air. Um, so they've got, you've got to push on to do proper testing for asthma. And if you like proper testing for ILO, really, um, certainly the selfie video type approach can help people think about it and, and in fact can start off with some breathing exercises to try and help. If you want to make a robust diagnosis of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, you've got to do some physiological testing and you've got to look at airflow. You can't just assume it from the history. And I really, really do not like people just being given uh, you know, uh, an albuterol inhaler and saying, you know, off you go and try that because it's fraught with so many difficulties. And, and, and let's not forget that the diagnosis you're given often sticks with you for a long time. It affects your insurance premiums. And it also, um, you know, if you're a young athlete, say you're, you're on a pathway to an elite performance system, no one will ever challenge that diagnosis again. They will just assume that they don't want to change it because you're already, you have to have the treatment. So, uh, you know, we have to, uh, we, you know, you have to, you have to challenge the diagnosis, make sure it's robust from the very onset. So that's what I was, I was going to ask you. Are there a lot of people who have this condition who are being misdiagnosed with asthma? Yes, a lot. I mean, I see five or six a week. And, in, and, and, the, and the evidence is the same across different uh, countries. So particularly in the Scandinavian countries who really pioneered a lot of this work, they find huge numbers of misdiagnoses. And it's the same within the States. Certainly Todd Olin, uh, one of my colleagues who works in Denver, finds huge numbers of misdiagnosed athletes. And the tragedy is, the tragedy is that this is a condition which has its peak prevalence around the ages of sort of 14 to 16. So if you come and see me when you're 19 or 20 and you say, look, my, my elite performance was held back at a certain critical point in my career development, around 17, 18 maybe, you've already missed the chance to get onto the next step. 
Um, and I've seen that so many times, especially with uh, elite cyclists who come to me 21, 22 and haven't really made the cut. Um, and actually it was all ILO all along and they were just given more and more asthma treatment. So it, it's, not, it's not a minor issue this. So we talked about minor impediment to performance. This will be career defining if you don't get the diagnosis right. Is there something about taking up athletics at a young age that is causing these high rates of ILO in athletes or is the function or the the act of exercise at high intensities just exposing you know sort of a naturally occurring in the general population weakness of our our system that's a fantastic question i I thought if you ask that question about exercise induced asthma then you've got a really if you like difficult issue because um we have seen over time and over longitudinal studies that certainly exposure to uh, pool environments appear to be associated with the development of airway hyper-responsiveness. And by that, I mean the lower airways becoming more twitchy to uh, the kind of chemical stimuli that we would use to see whether people have asthma. And we know if we take athletes outside of the pool, then that airway hyper-responsiveness starts to regress. So there's definitely that, if you like, dare I say it, causal, but there is some sort of relationship between doing high volumes in, a, in particularly chlorinated pool environments I'm not trying to deter people from swimming. Of course, it's an incredibly important sport and it's fantastic. But if you're in uh, poorly ventilated environments and you're doing huge amounts of time in that environment, so at the sort of elite level, there is an association with the development of airway hyperresponsiveness, which is reversible. Um, trying to make that message for ILO, we don't have the data. I, I think one thing's interesting in ILO is that you, you probably have if you like some form of a genetic um, predisposition to the condition, and then, it, and then you reveal that by the amount of sport and ventilation that you do. And so I sometimes see athletes or athletic individuals who've taken up um, vigorous endurance sport later in life. So, they, And when you ask them, you say, well, did you have symptoms when you did cross-country running at school? And they say, yeah, I did. That's why I didn't do any cross-country running at school because I was always last or I was always struggling and everyone used to mock the wheezy noise I made. And then as they've got back into it, it's occurred again. And it's probably some imbalance in the elastic um, and um, the, the, the integrity of the structures in the larynx, which make them more predisposed to fold in at the high ventilation levels, which cause the pressure drop. Another question I wanted to ask is you pointed out in the review that uh, there's also a, an age and sex effect that... Uh, it appears that females have a, a, a slightly narrower uh, airway. And also as we age, we lose some of that elasticity in our airways and, and in our lungs. And so uh, this, this breathlessness, this dys, uh, dyspnea gets, uh, gets more, is more common in, in women and in, in older athletes. Do I have that right? I think there's um, evolving data and, and certainly um, evolving research work which um, supports those statements and there are a number of expert labs uh, across the world looking at these areas in detail if i speak to the um, question about aging as we lose the elasticity and our lungs become more stiff the operating volumes within the lungs change and the way in which we move air in and out considerably changes so that actually when you exercise very hard you start to encroach upon some issues with the flow of air um, through the system and that's called expiratory flow limitation and we see that for instance in a more dramatic form in people who've got uh, chronic obstructive lung disease so if you smoked a lot and your airways are narrowed down 
it starts to look more like that. And of course, because uh, you might be performing exercise, you've got a you've got a, a mixture of an increased load with a slightly reduced capacity, and you can start to hit upon that flow limitation. And the same is true potentially within the uh, uh, from some data within the female. Uh, uh, anatomy and uh, airway system where slight narrowings appear to predispose you to some of the pressure changes and some of the flow limitations um, which you might see for instance in, in a more elderly otherwise lung. Um, if I just go back to ILO certainly we do see that actually this is a condition which has a female preponderance and so very classically I would see it in, in female athletic individuals in the age range of sort of again, 15, 16, 17. So they've got the sort of development of the airways, which is still uh, still occurring until you're about the age of 23, 24. Um, and at the same time, you've got some slightly different um, dimensional issues, which change the pressures and the predisposition to close the airway. So you mentioned expiratory flow limitation, and would love for you to quickly define that, but that kind of segues to our next conversation of how much does this affect performance? And I'm right now looking at two reviews, one that says expiratory flow limitation during exercise and competitive uh, competition cyclists. And basically says that it's, it can be an issue in high level cyclists. And another one that's titled the prevalence of expiratory flow limitation in youth elite male cyclists. So it seems like this is a, a potential performance issue. So expiratory flow limitation, by that, generally speaking, what we mean is that if you increase your ventilation, as you have to when you're exercising hard, within each breath, um, you develop something called a tidal volume, which is essentially the amount you breathe in and then you breathe out. And generally speaking, you increase the tidal volume. And as you uh, work harder, your diaphragm um, adopts a position when you're healthy, at least, to try and improve its contractility and to reduce the work of breathing. And so that changes the position of your lung volume slightly, and it tries to optimize the position of the lung volumes in order to try and, you know, if you like, maximize bang for your buck. So your muscles are in the best position possible. And you can think about it in a way that if, you know, if you're lifting weights, if you try and lift a weight with your arm out straight, it's going to be very difficult. If you start with it in a sort of half bent position, you're, you've optimized the load and the way in which the muscles position to start with. So the respiratory system is naturally doing that in healthy individuals. As you start to increase your tidal volume, it changes the lung volume. It changes the position on this so-called pressure volume curve, and that acts to optimize performance. As you work harder and harder, your tidal volume has to increase further and further. And before you start doing exercise, you take a maximum breath where you do as much as you can on the way in and then you blow out as hard as you can on the way out. You can then start to work out when you're increasing your tidal volume during exercise, do you start to encroach on what is that maximum envelope or threshold? And when people talk about expiratory flow limitation, what they're really saying is that actually, in some ways, conceptually, you're starting to encroach on that flow limitation envelope, whereby because there's a certain amount of flow that you can um, drive through the airways, and that's to do with pressure changes in the structures which keep the airways open and the pressures which are acting to try and close them down, you start to get a point where you can't increase the flow no matter how hard you breathe. So it doesn't matter if, you're the, if you've got the strongest muscles in the world or if you overtrain them with lots of um, respiratory muscle training, you cannot increase that flow because it's a physical property. 
And so there's been a lot of interest in that. And if I take it to an extreme where you've got, for instance, a chronic airways disease, where you have smaller airways, um, for instance, if you've got poorly controlled asthma and you've got thickening of the airways, that flow is already reduced. And then when you try and increase the tidal volume, you start to hit against that flow limitation and that causes you to feel breathless. And it goes back to the previous point we talked about that, you know, is there evidence of some flow limitation or this process occurring earlier when you're older because the elasticity and the way the lung volumes moves different and also your airway elasticity is slightly different. Is it different in female athletes? Is it different in master athletes? People have studied it in, for instance, uh, Kenyan endurance athletes because they can increase their ventilation so much. Um, you know, I think the thing to say is that what you really want to start with is you want really optimized flow from the very beginning. So if you have a hint of a tendency towards airway narrowing, for instance, in exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, already that's going to give you an increased drive towards expiratory flow limitation, which is then going to impair your performance. That then leads us to the big question of what can athletes do? What is trainable and what, what can they do to train it? The million dollar question, really. I mean, I suppose it's what's really interesting chatting to athletes and coaches is that there's this natural assumption that the larger your lungs are, the better you are. Um, and so people come into the uh, physiology lab and they do the breathing test to look at the measure of your forced vital capacity, which is the amount of air you can breathe out in total and the amount you can breathe out in the first second called the FEV1 or the peak flow. Some people might know. And they go, you know, what's my peak flow? What's my FEV1? Can I do anything to get my lungs to be bigger? Because if they're bigger, they must be better. And again, over, over many decades of research, what we found is that actually your lungs develop up to about the age of 25. And then from there on, sadly, it's a sort of inexorable slow decline in your lung volumes. And in fact, it, you, you cannot train or adapt your lungs after the age of about 25. And in fact, there's some debate as to whether you can change your lung volumes or at least the development of your lung under that age. So there is this focus from an athletic and coaching point of view that people need to try and get their lung volumes to be the biggest and the best they can. The reality is that those aren't trainable phenomenon. They're to do with the development and certainly in your younger life exposure to cigarette smoke, poor environments, being born prematurely are the real key factors which dictate the level at which you get your lung volumes to. People say that swimmers have fantastic lung volumes. And in fact, if you look in a cross-sectional studies um, of adolescent and uh, adult swimmers and compare them to you know, other endurance athletes, they do have larger lung volumes. Um, but there doesn't appear to be the um, substantial evidence that actually that lung volume is trained during swimming. Maybe more that actually those individuals are selected into swimming because I don't know, lots of different reasons have been proposed, but potentially they have buoyancy advantages because you've got larger lung volumes. So I think the first thing to say is you've got to know what you're looking at to start with. And there's a lot of, um, if you like, mistruths about what you can train and what could be better for you to try and increase your performance. I mean, the second thing to say is that, um, you know, breathing, generally speaking, happens naturally. So most of the time for most people, they don't think about their breathing. They don't think about their breathing at rest. They don't think about it when they're at work and they don't think about when they're exercising. So if it's not causing you any problem at all and you're not having any sensations of discomfort or other issues, then what I say to people is, look, try your very hardest not to disturb it because if it's disturbed and you become focused on it, um, you know, it can really cause problems. And I look after a great number of athletes who um, 
are breathless or have unusual sensations from their chest or from their upper airway. And it really detracts them from being able to train or perform in their most natural way. And we spend a lot of time doing tests to determine if there's a problem, but also then trying to work with specialist breathing techniques to allow them to return back to a state where they just feel like their breathing flows for them. So if your breathing is flowing for you, I don't think you should tinker or mess around with it too much. You should just let it be because as we talked about earlier in the podcast, it's unlikely to be a major limiting uh, factor in your overall performance if it's not if it's flowing okay the other thing that people don't think about is that actually and one of the things i've been really closely involved with the english institute of sport and team gb recently is to try and say look one of the major factors or one of the limiting factors that the respiratory system tends to throw in is the fact that people get respiratory tract infections so if you think over the course of an athletic year there are a number of events that you really want to do well in and then your performance targets. Now, over that course of that year, you will prepare, you'll have a very detailed training program. There will be peaks and troughs, of course, with potential some injuries and niggles. But a key factor that people often overlook is the impact of illness on ability to sustain a steady training load. And again, people might scoff at that and say, well, you know, a couple of respiratory tract infections, we can live with that. But it's amazing the number of athletes who are getting at least three or more respiratory tract infections, which at each time impact them for five to seven days. And then after that, they've got to get back to recovery. They've got to step it back up again. And so, you know, you probably expected me to talk about, you know, inspiratory muscle training or, you know, little nasal strips you can put on to increase nasal flow. The reality from my point of view, when I look at the athletes that I look after is that I want them to be as close as I can to infection free. Now, of course, you're going to get one infection a year. Everyone does but as close as I can to knocking that down so they can have sustained periods where they're not being knocked out by the respiratory system causing mischief for them. And then the second thing I want them to do is to obtain respiratory flow where they feel like there's no problems at all. It's not an issue. So they don't even know why I'm there because effectively, you know, there is no issue and they can do the other things that are so much more important in terms of nutrition and loading and the other key issues and sleep and other things which are important so i mean those would be my major points and of course we can talk about other trimmings around the edges uh in terms of other things that people could think about particularly if they're running into problems and have symptoms we asked wahoo's head of sports science his thoughts on breathing working with world champion time trialists we knew he'd have a lot to say he talked both about the autonomic response of the system and the importance of diaphragmatic breathing here's neil henderson do you work with athletes on breathing technique? If so, what are you hoping to elicit there? What are the performance gains you've seen there? Yeah, there's there's a few things when we think about breathing. It's, you know, there's kind of an autonomic, you know, autonomic and automatic way that we breathe. And when we get stressed, we often get more of that kind of chest breathing. And through training, we want to develop more of that diaphragmatic breathing where we get that belly breathing deep breath. We have better exchange. And so in a time trial, really important to think about controlling that breath and getting that full diaphragm breathing rather than just relying on that that kind of upper chest breathing. So breathing rate is often one of those things that we we have people think about when they're doing different efforts uh, in their training and, and trying to control that effort and manage it with the breath control as well as then the power and cadence. 
Well, I find this fascinating because you're basically saying you want to get to the point where you can just kind of ignore your breathing, if that's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. So what about all these people who say, no, you need to do, so we're going to go back to where Chris started this with, with all the yogi practice, where there are people who feel you, you need to be doing all this deep breathing uh, type work to improve your, your breathing on the bike. What is your feeling about that? Do you think it helps? There's a lots of people who talk about this, and so um, your readers or listeners will 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 certainly be aware of uh, uh, podcasts and seminars on modulating your techniques. Some people have advised breathing slowly in order to allow you to, if you like, drop your oxygen levels so you can be exposed to a hypoxic environment when you're training by holding your breath. Uh, um, others of it, others advise modulated breathing techniques. Often, in, for instance, in soldiers. I get told that they've been they've been coached and trained to breathe every third step or second step. So they have very odd breathing patterns, um, as they've been told. That's how they should march and breathe at the same time. Others who are told that you should breathe entirely through your nose, which you know, as physiologists, you know that actually, you know, it's impossible once you start to breathe at at least a moderate exercise intensity because, you know, our nose is such a resistive source to the airflow. So once you get above thirty-five liters a minute, which is basically going up a flight of stairs fast. You have to open your mouth to allow enough air in to allow enough oxygen to get to the exercising muscles. So, you know, I, I, I'm not here to dismiss people's concepts or thoughts or beliefs about these different systems. But my feeling is that generally speaking, the system is so well attuned to in exercise to adapting to the loads that are placed on it and the regulation of carbon dioxide and excretion of waste gases. that if it's working well and it isn't causing you any problems, I wouldn't go near trying to mess around with it. Um, and as I said, you know, I look after a lot of people who they haven't caused this themselves, but they're struggling with symptoms and they feel a lot of discomfort. Or they feel distressed and they can't get a satisfying breath. And I'm on the other side then having to try and work out a way to try and help them breathe effectively. Now, if I talk about cyclists, one of the problems with cycling a bit like rowing is that, you know, you'd think it was basically a lower limb predominant uh, exercise. And of course, um, you know, the power delivery is pretty much lower kinetic chain and downwards, but cyclists carry a lot of tension in their upper body. They carry it through their neck, they carry it in their chest. We did a study where we placed EMG, which are, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a way of looking at muscle activity, uh, EMG sensors on the um, upper kinetic chain and particularly around the traps and around the back of the neck, essentially. When we see huge amounts of activity going through that chain, people gripping on tightly onto bars, and that translates into bad patterns. So it causes stress and tension through the throat, and it causes a pattern of breathing where people tend to start to disengage the diaphragm, and they're starting to breathe more apically, so through the higher part of their chest. It's not a very efficient way to breathe, and effectively is associated with the presence of dyspnea. And if we adjust that pattern, we see people's breathlessness scores going down. So, you know, I would say, just to summarize that bit, I would say, look, don't mess with it. It's not broken. Think about things which allow you to have sustained load without getting, for instance, infections. If it's broken, then you need to think about how to repair it. But finally, on a bike, for instance, you need to think about your upper kinetic chain being relaxed and you breathing through the diaphragm because that's the most efficient way to breathe. It's the, it's the area that is the muscle which allows you to transmit the best ventilation. And that's what you need to, uh, to deliver oxygen. Colby Pierce needs no introduction on our show. When we decided to do an episode on breathing, Trevor and I knew we had to talk with him. His answer is loaded with practical advice, both from a scientific point of view and a holistic perspective. 
Well, yeah, I mean, obviously cycling is a sport that is, uh, for many athletes, the rate limiting factor for their performance is O2 transport, right? Um, and it can be an oxygen to CO2 ratio kind of situation going on. In some cases, like Froome's case, he says um, in interviews that he's got small airway, and that's why he's always riding with his head looking down. Everyone thinks he's looking at his power meter, but he insists that he breathes better. So breathing obviously has a pretty big impact on our sport, uh, both the technique and the volume of breath. And there are all kinds of gizmos out there and inspirometers you can use to measure your lung capacity and so forth. And and um, devices that proclaim to make you uh, to train the inspirational and expirational muscles and make you more efficient at that. And the science from what I've seen on that is pretty up and down depending on the device and the technique used, et cetera. Um, but I will say there's a pretty clear connection in my experience between breathing technique and core stability, which a lot of people don't necessarily put together, but those two are related and it's far more common than I, than someone might initially expect or that I would hope to find athletes come through my door when I do a fit with them who are afflicted by dysfunctional breathing or an inverted breathing pattern or are chronic chest breathers. Chest, chest breathing is, is pretty common. And a lot of these terms are being thrown around now by um, people who study the world of breathing. And some of them may be terms that are overused and, and whatever. I don't really care about that. I'll just <laughs> say that. So, <laughs> but if you look at an infant breathing pattern, right? When they inhale, the diaphragm drops and the belly expands. And as they exhale, the diaphragm rises and the belly draws the, the belly button draws closer to the spine, you might say, right? And that is a air quotes, correct breathing pattern. And it's a breathing pattern that we should have during exercise, but it's quite common for athletes to do the opposite. They inhale and their chest and collarbones rise up towards the ears and get taller. And the, and in some cases, the belly actually comes in. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, there can be stress responses that have brought about this breathing pattern. There can also be childhood experiences. And also for women in particular, but even for men as well, anytime an athlete has been involved at a younger age in a sport that values aesthetics in any form, that can be ballet or gymnastics, they don't want to be seen as having a belly or a mm. pooch. And so they learn to kind of brace themselves in the abs while they're breathing. And that usually leads to an inverted breathing pattern. That's very mm. problematic. So... In, you know, it all depends on what the rate limiting factor of the athlete is. Uh, some athletes have very high VO2s, but really poor leg strength, for example. So we can give them breath exercises all we want, but they may not go any faster until their legs are strong enough to handle the load of their race. Uh, but there are many athletes who are limited by their ability to process oxygen in the, in the appropriate uh, way. And some of that can be technique related. And some of it can be that they aren't trained in certain aspects of breathing. Uh, for example, uh, Patrick McGowan in his book, The Oxygen Advantage, talks about te simple techniques you can use to extend your capacity to tolerate high levels of CO2 in the bloodstream. And he gives you some really simple exercises to do. Uh, if you decided to read this book, I recommend it. It's a great read. Um, if you decide to try these, only do them on the trainer because if you push it too far and pass out while you're riding your bike, obviously bad things can happen. And even on the trainer, you can hurt yourself if you fall off. So you have been warned. But... You know, one of his simple techniques is you uh, inhale fully and then exhale, let all the air pass out of the lungs, draw the belly button towards the spine, and then do a simple breath hold until you become moderately discomfort, uh, uncomfortable, discomfortable, discomfortable, <laughs> discomfortable. And that simple exercise, you can spread those out, you know, over a trainer session of 30 minutes, you might do, uh, you know, 10, 12 reps of that, perhaps that'd be probably enough for most people. 
um, you can train your body to tolerate higher levels of CO2, which is a whole world uh, that, you know, free divers get into. And mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. their universe is learning how to tolerate that. And there are all kinds of interesting physiological effects that jump out when you start to train that aspect of the system. So mm-hmm. an urban legend is that Pantani used to like to train in the pool where he would swim yep. laps underwater right. to train that tolerance yep. stability of yep. CO2. In, in a practical sense, you, you're such a great time trialist and don't mm-hmm. don't refute that fact. I know you, you sometimes like to do that, but we're going to let you. Uh, we're going to give you all the credit in the world for being great at it. Um, you've done a lot of our records. How does breathing... Uh, how, what have you learned from from those um, disciplines, th- those uh, particular experiences about the importance of breathing? Mm. Yeah, interesting. So there are definitely books out there who, um, written by athletes and coaches that talk about having a specific breathing technique in coordination with your pedal stroke during time trials. Uh, Obri is one of them. There are lots of books out there that talk about this. And I've tried all those, and man, none of them work for me. Uh, it just... For whatever reason, trying to coordinate my breath with a certain number of pedal strokes, you know, for example, to say, oh, pedal three times on the left during your exhale and then three times on the right during your inhale or whatever, depending on your cadence. Too much thinking other variables. going on there. For me, it was too mechanical and it just didn't, I couldn't, it disrupted my rhythm. But there may be athletes who find a technique that works well for them. And breathing is, let's be clear, breathing is directly related to the status of the central nervous system. And breath is really interesting because breath is really the only clear window we have, I'll say we meaning sort of common folk, into accessing and influencing our central nervous system, right? That's why when you're learning how to meditate, it almost always begins with breath work. Why? Because, okay, we have the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system and the central nervous system on the whole or the autonomic nervous system. And you look at activities that basically we have direct conscious control over, like I can pick my nose or wave to Chris or you know, whatever, drink some water. And I'm controlling my hand and my arm when I do that. Breath, then we have other activities that we don't really consciously control unless unless we're a yogi or a monk. So our heartbeat, for example, our core temperature, unless you're Wim Hof, then you can start to control that stuff. Uh, how your immune system responds to external uh, attackers or invaders, such as a virus, also Wim Hof, right? So most people don't have control over those aspects of their body. Those are automatic. Breath is the one that switches back and forth at all times because, of course, we breathe all day, every day. Otherwise, we would die. One of the fastest ways to kill yourself is to stop breathing. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very essential function. But we can also consciously take control of our breathing at any time if we decide to focus on it. And the simplest way to activate more parasympathetic nervous system response and downregulate sympathetic nervous, nervous system response is to time the exhales and the inhales and make your exhales longer than your inhales. That's a really simple technique you can use when you're stressed out on the start line of a race, when you're trying to make your flight on the way to the bike race or on the way to your business meeting, whatever. So um, breath work is a critical window into that aspect and how people breathe does influence the way they relate to stressors in the world, both during competition and in daily life. Um, one Another simple drill I've given my athletes is I'll have them do recovery rides and have them exclusively nasally breathe or breathe only through the nose with the mouth closed. And some athletes find this incredibly challenging. Uh, If they do, that's probably a pretty good sign that they have some inverted or dysfunctional breathing patterns. It's also a good sign that there's probably some low-hanging fruit to be made there in terms of gains. Um, Even just being conscientious of that motion of breathing during your riding and not taking the mouth breath for granted can make some changes in an athlete's perspective. So, 
there's a lot to breath. Um, I'm a big fan of people exploring it and looking into it. I think athletes, some athletes might find that there are really no gains there because it's a game of, it's, it's a paradigm of looking for rate limiting factors in the athlete's performance. And again, if you happen to have a really huge VO2 in a giant airway and you process O2 very efficiently metabolically, then that may not be where your gains are made. You might be most of the time when you're getting dropped, it might be because your legs are on fire or you don't have the raw force. That's possible, right? Or you don't have the force to follow accelerations, but you've got a massive VO2, so you tend to diesel your way back up to those accelerations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So think about the skinny climbers who ride that way. Then on the flip side, we have the Valverdes, the, the uh, Sagans, who are very explosive and high, have high aerobic capacity, and they've got both going on. So just to illustrate that contrast. I think people will often refer to that as belly breathing. Is, is there a tip or a trick you can help people for, for those that aren't familiar with that or the, the, act, the action of belly breathing that will help them understand how to do that? Yeah, lots of uh, lots of people talk about it exactly like that and those terms. And you see you see some very famous cyclists or elite cyclists who look as though they're actually overweight, and that's because they're so effective at, at dropping the diaphragm and they've got such big lung volumes. And Miguel Indrian is a classical example of that, um, where you see and people are oh, a bit overweight, but it, exactly the diaphragm is lowered. And if you breathe with the diaphragm, effectively your shoulders shouldn't move but your stomach comes out because the diaphragm is going down as you breathe in and that's displacing abdominal uh, contents. And so you see a distension of the abdomen. If you don't see that and you see a lots of shoulder and upper body movement um, with breaths in and out. And so I, you know, one of the things I do is ask an athlete when I see them is to take a deep breath in. And if I see the shoulders going up in the air, you know, that's apical breathing and apical breathing isn't a very efficient way to breathe. And if you think about the way that blood flow is distributed through the lung, you know, it's largely, it's largely governed by the presence of gravity. And so if you, at the top of the lung, you've got relatively poor uh, blood flow and at the bottom of the lung, you've got better blood flow. So you want to try and optimize the matching of ventilation to perfusion by engaging the diaphragm uh, and increasing your ventilation through the bases. So I say to athletes, you know, look, think about um, your, your, your stomach and if it's coming out, particularly at rest. If you're at rest and you're not on the bike, you should be breathing through your nose. You shouldn't be breathing through an open mouth and sitting there with a sort of gawpy open mouth expression because you just drag air in through the mouth and it's not filtered. So the nose filters all the muck out of the way. And it also, as you breathe in through your nose, it sends a, a, a parallel neural traffic to the diaphragm and gets the diaphragm to contract. And then when you're on the bike, think and continue to think about whether you're up, your, your shoulders and your neck are relaxed and think about when you're breathing out, if you have um, a nice flow on the exhalatory breath, which allows you to have control of the breath. Uh, and again, just thinking about those processes is important to relax your shoulders and just keep going around that cycle whilst you're racing. I guess that brings up a second question here. You, you, you've just touched on it a little bit. Is inhalation or exhalation, are, are, is one of them more important, would you say? Depends on the individual and it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So um, if I talk about ILO, um, which as I said, is a very common, often overlooked cause of breathlessness uh, in cyclists. Um, what happens is that the, the main limiting factor in that condition is as you take a breath in, the structures in the throat and it feels like it's the upper chest really, they close in and they, they stop you from being able to obtain a satisfying in-breath. 
So in those individuals who are reporting that problem, you've got to modulate that in-breath. And so we use specialist techniques where we put a slight break on the very start of the breath. And that, in my mind at least, it's not been proven in studies, but in my mind, just modulates the pressure drop across the larynx and allows that breath to be modulated sufficiently to allow the larynx to stay open and allow the high quality breath to be uh, taken in. In contrast, for individuals who may overbreathe or have problems slightly lower down in the airway where the trachea is slightly more floppy, um, you need to modulate the exhalatory flow. And we do that with something uh, called purslip breathing, which is essentially a technique which just narrows the outlet of the lips and then just modulates airflow on the way out. Um, and you know, there's different ways of, of adapting these different breathing techniques depending on an individual's problems. I mean, I, you know, I've tried these myself um, when I ride and, um, you know, in many ways they're a satisfying way to breathe anyway, because they, they modulate the airflow slightly and it, and it gives you a, a more satisfying breath out. And it's the same thing that's used in sprinters. So if you look at a hundred meter final and you look at people who are sprinting effectively as they're moving their arms, they're making that very aggressive, almost purse lip breathing out maneuver, uh, which acts as to provide a bit of back pressure into the airways. Uh, and it's a comfortable enough, a powerful way to breathe. So can you describe in a little more detail this this method of breathing? Yeah, it's difficult to do without a video, which is a shame. But, um, you know, if people on the way out, if people envisage, you know, or if they think what a sprint is like, effectively, it's, you know, you can't see me, but, you know, you're sort of basically, which is that sort of blowing. So you're trying to, it's almost like I say to people, you know, when you're breathing out, imagine bringing your lips together and you're trying to blow up a balloon but forcibly, or some people say you're trying to blow out against um, a rotating, like a sort of, you know, like a hamster wheel or something like that. You're trying to, as you blow, you're trying to get that hamster wheel to turn in front of you. And you can use that analogy to say, look, you know, is it turning, is it turning things forward? Is it turning the wheels to make you go faster? Yeah. So it's an active form of breathing in that you're not just letting air come out. You're directing it in a, in a, in a way. Exactly that. But again, I mean, you know, if your breathing's not causing you any problems, you know, I, people are always looking for ways to say, look, you know, can I get an extra 0. whatever 1% of performance out of this? I, you know, I can't speak to any evidence which will give you that. Um, but if, you're, if you feel distressed by your breathing, some of these techniques um, can certainly help. Um, and, you know, I, I, at the same time, if you're feeling distressed by your breathing, it's really important that you go to see someone, take the selfie video, like I said, Think about what the diagnosis could be. Take the take the uh, this podcast and take it to your primary care physician or your coach and say, look, you know, listen to this. This I think I've got this. Is there anything else that could be done for me? Is you know, and, and work around it that way rather than saying, you know, look, it's going to be asthma. There you go. There's your inhaler. Off you go. Um, and, you know, hopefully it will challenge people to think uh, more outside the box on this area. So I mentioned that on the show before. So I'm, I'm glad you you talked about that way of breathing where when you watch a very experienced time trialist versus somebody trying to do a time trial is very new to cycling, you see that that difference. The very experienced time trialist, you hear a very forceful exhalation. They're really focusing on getting rid of the, the carbon dioxide exhaling out, where often you'll see an experienced cyclist really focusing on the, the inhalation, and that's where you hear the sound. I think that's right. I am... Um... It's difficult. You, from my point of view, and certainly from um, or my, or my method of practice, is really to give people very simple um, techniques. So, for instance, in the ILO 
world, I use a technique called the Hoover technique, which is essentially getting people to think rhythmically, rhythmically about the sound of the word Hoover. So, you know, the out breath is a, and on the way in, you're making like a V sound, so it's a V, so it goes, and it's, you know, it modulates airflow in a biphasic way um, to try and improve things. And, you know, I've written a bit about this that people can access online and have a look at, but, you know, it, it goes back to the fact that if you're really struggling, you need to see someone because they need to get things right for you to start with. There's no point trying to just go for this and say, oh, I wonder if this will work for me. When in fact, then you find out actually it is asthma on this occasion and you needed some meds to try and optimize it. And so it has to be in some way personalized. But if you get to a point that you think the diagnosis is, you know, people are happy with it, then, you know, there's lots written on these different techniques and, you know, um, I've tried to write and be on Twitter and things like that to, to, to try and inform people on the different ways to help with their breathing. So I would say the, the last thing I want to do, unless there's, there's anything that uh, both of you would like to bring up is just hit you with a couple potential myth busters here. Uh, whether, so there, there are things that go around as, Hey, this is really effective. I would love to get your opinion on this. You've already addressed one, which is that, nasal breathing. So there's been some recent studies on that. And actually, they're coming out of Colorado, Colorado State University, uh, Dr. Dallum saying that we need to practice uh, nasal breathing. And, and if you practice it, you can get quite good at it. And he's claiming it, it's better for performance. What's what's your feeling about this? Well, I'm going to give myself in hot water on it. So I, I'm, I'm going to be... <laughs> we can, you can give us a the diplomatic answer. Yeah, I'm going to be diplomatic and careful because, I, you know, as I said before, you know, I'm not I'm not here really to sort of rubbish people's approaches. And, uh, you know, if you look in Amazon, there's like, you know, 35 books written on how to breathe um, and, and people's careers are um, defined by some of the techniques that they've talked about. So, I mean, what I would say is that if you think about it in, in simple physiological terms, you know, when you start to work harder, you need to be able to um, satisfy the exercising muscles requirement for oxygen with a certain amount of ventilation, which is entirely dictated by how efficient your lung is. So providing you don't have lung disease, you know, as you exercise harder, you've got to breathe harder to be able to deliver oxygen. And the, the, the nose is a particularly resistive segment of the airway. You can't get away from that. Um, and, and certainly putting plastic strips on it, I'm afraid, isn't going to suddenly make you be able to breathe through your nose, uh, 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 you know, when the brake goes down the road. So the other thing about the nose is it does some really important things. And so it filters in environmental toxins. It filters pollen. Um, it humidifies the air. And humidification and warmth of the air is such an important uh, feature because, for instance, if we look at exercise-induced asthma, we know that dry, cold air getting into the airways is a really prime stimulus for the airways to narrow down. They don't like that irritation. So the nose is really important, but it's, it, it, it's as far as you can take it when you're exercising hard. So yeah, you could train yourself to get some more literage out of your nose, but there is going to come a point where you have to open your mouth. And so I would say, look, you know, yes, you have to breathe through your nose when you're at rest. It's really important. If you see an athlete who's sat there breathing it out through an open mouth, they're missing all those advantages. Do I see a technique that allows you to breathe more and more through your nose in peak exercise and satisfies the ventilatory requirement? No, I don't. I think that's um, difficult to obtain. The other thing I'd say about the nose, which I think is really important, is that people often overlook hay fever, for instance. So they say, you can tell I'm a physician, so I just go back to the sort of medicalization of things. But if you 
if some if an athlete comes to see me and says, um, you know, I keep getting sore throats, my voice is a bit funny, uh, you know, around sort of June, May, June, and my performance um, starts to dip away, you know, one of the first things I'll say is, tell me about your allergies. Oh yeah, I have hay fever, but it's, it, it, I treat it with this. I said, does it does it really treat it properly? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm mostly stuffy in my nose, but I breathe through my mouth, so it's not a problem. Well, the problem isn't simply in exercise. The problem is all around exercise. So at nighttime, when you're lying in bed and you're trying to sleep, your nose is blocked, so therefore you have to breathe through an open mouth. You're in an air-conditioned room because you've gone to a fixture and you're in a hotel and it's kind of a warm time of year. So effectively, you're dragging dry, cold air into the airways. I've already said that humidification of the airways is really important to stop them from being irritable or from closing down. Um, and so you've got all these things interplaying with each other. And of course, the dry air is causing irritation of the mucosa at the back of the throat. And then the sore throat arrives and then the respiratory tract infection arrives. And so, you know, far more important than training, breathing, nasal flow uh, techniques for me is saying, look, make sure the nasal flow is good. Make sure an athlete uses the nose at rest when you exercise go back to trying to get the natural flow and not trying to overthink it. One other potential myth buster. I remember something that used to go around among cyclists that if you're going really hard, like in a sprint or up a 15% climb where everybody's trying to, to race to the top and you have your mouth wide open, trying to breathe that moving your lower jaw around will cause a more turbulent flow, which will help your ability to breathe. Is there anything to that? <laughs> I've not heard that before. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, actually. That's interesting. I mean, what, what is interesting is that if you think about um, the nerve supply to the jaw and the mouth and particularly the facial area and, and inside the buccal mucosa, we, we're seeing more and more that certain degrees of even what might be deemed to be subtle distractions appear to reduce the, the sensation of work. So a prime example, as you'll be aware of, is carbohydrate washing in the mouth, um, more recently a menthol within the mouth. People have shown that using a cooling fan on the side of the face. Some people have said that chewing gum, all those things appear to reduce the perceived effort that someone's doing at that time. And that's really intriguing and interesting to me because, you know, it, 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 it speaks to what you're saying really is that, you know, is there a way that you can distract something around the face or the musculature or even within the mouth which allows the perception of work to be reduced or modified and you know i, I can't you know cite any uh, evidence to support moving the jaw around as changing but those other factors appear to be relevant and you know it's it's i suppose conceivable that moving the jaw around is in the same way forming some form of a sensory distraction um, and reducing the work i mean you know from my point of view again you know, if you're working hard and you've got high levels of ventilation and bearing in mind the high prevalence of laryngeal flow problems, you know, what I really want is a, is a relatively simple flow, which isn't distracted or turbulent by the time it hits the back of the throat. So, you know, I would encourage people to think about the other sensory distractions as opposed to moving the jaw around a lot. But it probably it probably actually scares the opposition, which is probably, you know, exactly how you can get <laughs> away from them when they see you growling and grimacing uh, when you're climbing. Well, well, the trick there, this is one that I was taught very early in my career, is if you're going up a hill beside somebody, if you want to intimidate them, you pass them. But just before you come into their line of sight, uh, you close your mouth and nose breathe and, and try to get, make sure you get by them quickly 
so that they can no longer see your face and then start gasping for air. But as they see- <laughs> we've seen that in the Tour de France this last few weeks where um, people effectively are breathing with not much mouth open, at, uh, you know, the latter stages of the stages, which um, speaks to their, their high level of conditioning of some of these athletes. Being that you're new to the program, Dr. Hall, I'll explain, but it's very simple. We love to close out a program each episode with our take-homes. We like to put people on the clock a little bit, give them a, a little pressure to perform, 60 seconds. What, what would you say in your words are the most important messages from this episode today? It's been great to talk to you about um, how highly evolved the respiratory system is and what a fantastic system is when it works well. So I would suggest to athletes, if it's working well for you and you have no problems, don't tinker with it. Um, it's not going to cause you problems. Having said that, there are a number of conditions which can cause you to breathe, dif uh, have difficulties with your breathing. Um, and, you know, you need to think about that and make sure you get the diagnosis right. So if you think it, you're getting wheeze and you're getting breathlessness, Think about the conditions that we've talked about, particularly exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. Take a selfie video on your phone or get someone to do that so they can see what the wheeze is like when you take it to your coach or practitioner. And also think about times outside exercise. So make sure you avoid getting infection. Make sure you treat hay fever properly so your nose works. Make sure you've got good levels of hydration on board so your airways are nice and moist and well-conditioned. But otherwise, I would try and avoid anything else to tinker with it if it's working well for you. Great. Trevor, are you still uh, sad about the fact that pronghorns and humans are not the, uh, it's not so simple when it comes to the overbuilt, underbuilt discussion? Yeah, well, well I do. I, I'm a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what do you That's, have for your take home today? I've lost one of my favorite points that I love to discuss. <laughs> Another one, which you, you've kind of confirmed. So my one minute is going to be somewhat similar to yours is just digging through as much research as I could before this podcast, just this common trend. So they're back around 2000, Dr. Lucia did a bunch of studies. And so I'm looking at one right now where the, the abstract says, these findings suggest that endurance conditioning does not alter the breathing pattern of professional cyclists. Uh, there's been some other recent studies looking at ventilatory efficiency and basically keeps coming up with, yeah, not much we can do about it. What I really got from your review is just how complex this whole system is and how amazing it is with all these complexities, with all these steps in the process from getting air from your mouth to your, your muscles and then getting rid of the carbon dioxide, how effective all these parts are at working together when it's working right and, and providing what you need which gets to, so basically I'm repeating exactly what you just said, which is the best thing you can do is get out of the way of the system and let it function optimally. Yeah, you got it. Excellent. Chris? Uh, well, you know, I don't have all that much to add, really. I think I've been lucky in many ways that I've never really had to deal with any issues um, and I haven't therefore had to tinker with anything, but it sounds like we're probably speaking to a lot of people that have issues out there that may be misdiagnosed. It sounds like Trevor probably needs to, um, reconsider his breathing issues as an example. So I guess I would encourage people to really take in this information and understand what might be going wrong if, the, if they do have some of these symptoms and reassess 
how they should treat it because it might really improve their experience on the bike or as an endurance athlete in general. Great episode. Thank you. That was, I thought, very informative. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ho. That was great. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. James Hull, Colby Pierce, Erica Clevenger, Julie Young, Neil Henderson, and Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.